I want to talk about the unlikely ingredients that God can use to bring good into our lives. So let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for everything already that has happened today. We thank you for the house of God and we thank you for the family of God, that we do this together, that we have brothers and sisters to walk this journey with. Lord God, I thank you that we have access to a joy, a happiness, a love that goes beyond the natural. And Heavenly Father, I pray that our hearts will be open to hear from you today. Lord God, challenge us and convict us where needed. Stir our hearts to action where we need. Lord, may we leave this place knowing you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are many things that I try and better myself at doing or, or being. I try and be a better preacher. I try and learn different ways of, of communicating the Word of God. I, I try and be a better father to my kids. I try and be a better steward of our money. I'm not very good at that one yet. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. And I'm trying also to be a better husband. Now, gentlemen, <clears throat> here's some free advice. <laughs> Why are you laughing? When you're wanting to work on being a better husband, what I've discovered is what you do is you buy flowers. It works every single time. The ladies are nodding. Uh, Gentlemen, here's free advice. Buy flowers. See, when when, when we first got married, uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, (laughs) Don't laugh. I didn't, I didn't really enter into marriage with a plan or really knowing what to do. I was inexperienced. I was untested. And to be honest, I was a little overconfident, thinking, how hard can this really be? <clears throat> how wrong was I? But what I quickly learned is that regardless of the situation that you go through in marriage, if you buy flowers, then the Holy Spirit somehow manages to work everything else out for you. Every time it works. And what's more, gentlemen, is what I found out that buying flowers is a whole lot easier than we actually think it is. You see, what I found is that it's not like ordering a meal at McDonald's. You don't kind of go, oh, I'll have some roses, uh, no thorns, uh, a little bit extra baby breath, a side of, of tulips, and it's thankfully not like that. They are pre made. You just go there and you say, I want that one. And you walk out the store with a bouquet that's already been made up, ready to go. Now, there is something that happens to a man when you have bought your wife some flowers and you walk out of a store. There is a swagger that happens. There is a confidence that takes over when you walk. I I sometimes just go to Coles and just grab a bunch of flowers and just walk through the store with a bunch of flowers because it makes you feel there's a confidence that comes with it. I don't do that. I'm just joking. (laughs) Give it a try. Just throw that one out there. See how it goes. But you, there, there, there's this confidence that comes where you kind of go, I'm the man. I, I, she is going to love me more now than what she did this morning. I've got brownie points stored up for the next five hours. Nay, I am husband of the week. <laughs> but what if I walked into the house and Beck was there, and instead of a bunch of roses, what if I walked in with a packet of rose seeds and said, here you go, honey, plant your own roses today. <laughs> How would that go down? Or what if I just gave her a big bucket of water and said, hey, if you get thirsty while you're planting those road seeds, here's some water for you. Or what if even worse, I just gave her a big bag of dirt? Now, come on, ladies, honestly, how would you respond if your man did that for you? 
If you had the choice between a beautiful bunch of roses that he brought home or a bag of dirt, which one are you going to choose? The roses. The roses? Roses, show of hands. Who wants roses? Who wants a bag of dirt? Avanna wants a bag of dirt. Trust the soil scientist. Oh, gosh. See, isn't it funny that if I gave my wife a bunch of flowers, then I would be a great husband. If I gave her the things that she needed in order to produce her own flowers, suddenly I'm not as great a husband. And I think that we treat God sometimes that way too. God, give me the final product. Don't, don't give me the things I need in my life to produce the final product, but just give me the final product. Give me the flowers. I want the roses, God. I don't want the process of getting to that. Just give me the roses. And maybe God's intention is not to give you just the final product, but to give you the things in your life that you need in order to grow and develop those final products in your life for yourself. Maybe he's given into your life all the elements that you need in order to see that dream fulfilled and not just opening the door for that dream straight away. To see that calling come to be, to experience that promise realized in your life. But maybe we're too caught up in God giving us the final product nicely arranged and wrapped with a ribbon instead of seeing that he is actually giving us the things that we need and allowing us to go through the things in order to grow those things for ourselves in our lives. David actually had this attitude. He didn't ask for just the final product, but he realized that God had, everything, had given him everything that he needed. He says in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Paul too understood this where he wrote in Romans 5, he said, But we also glory in our sufferings. How many of us love to do that? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But we want the hope. We like the hope. But are we okay with the suffering knowing that it's an ingredient for growing our own hope? See, the interesting thing is that much like growing a rose, those things that you need in order to produce arose are symbolic of things that we find in the Bible. Jesus shared a parable to the people about a farmer who's scattering seed, and, and seed in the parable represents the Word of God, but throughout Scripture we see that seed also speaks of promises of God, speaks of the potential of God doing miraculous works and things through our lives. It's the potential that is stored up. Often in the Bible, you'll see that water is used to symbolize salvation, the cleansing of sin, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah says that with, um, with joy, you will draw waters from the well of salvation. And Jesus says in John 7, whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from them. But this morning, I want to focus on another element, and that's the element we need of dirt. And as we'll see, the Bible speaks a fair bit about the dirt in our lives. I'm sure that all of us would be able to say that there have been things that have happened, mistakes that we've made, choices that have been made, and situations in our lives that, beyond our, that are beyond our control that feel like dirt. We all have these things in our life that if we're honest and we look at them, we're going to go, you know what, that just feels like a lump of dirt. 
None of us are perfect. None of us are exempt from this. We, we, we've all experienced that. There's a whole lot of nodding going around where I say there's situations that we feel like there's dirt. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, I've got some dirt. Now turn to your second choice and say, I haven't forgotten about you. You're dirty too. <laughs> Let's have a look at Genesis 2, 5 to 7. It says this. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust, from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We have this picture of this land with, with no shrubs, no plants, no roses, that's for sure, before it's even rained. And God looks around and all there was was dirt. That is all there was. And God created from the dirt, the most unlikely of ingredients, but he made something from it. He took that which had no life, no value, no significance, and he formed man from it. Mankind with our intricate details, with our complex systems, with our elaborate elements, us who are fearfully and wonderfully made from a pile of dirt. And isn't that just a beautiful picture and assurance for any of us today who are looking at a situation and asking ourselves the question, how can anything good actually come from this? It's a wonderful assurance for us because if God can take a lump of dirt and can form mankind out of that, then what about the situation that we look at and we say, that's just a pile of dirt? The whole story of creation assures us of the fact that when God gets involved, He doesn't need everything uh, he doesn't need for everything to start off with to be good because he is good. Each of the six days of creation, God either starts with absolutely nothing or something which is void, barren, or lifeless. But after he speaks, after he creates, there is life, there is order, there is form, and there is function. And each time that he looks at it, he says, it is good. Not because it's an, a rearrangement of something that was good already, not even, it's not even a level up from something that was okay, just being good. No, he takes nothing. He takes things that are formless. He takes dirt. He takes mess. And he makes it into something good because he is good. But how often do we forget to add God to the equation right from the beginning? I was really challenged by what Vicki Simpson shared a few weeks ago where she was brutally honest and she said, I've never questioned whether God was real, but she's questioned whether he was good. And there are times when they're outworking and the timing of God's revealed goodness doesn't meet up with our expectations. I think we've all experienced that. But it says in Psalm 34 verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. There is an experiential aspect to the goodness of God that we can all have. And the truth is that you and I can experience the goodness of God even through the dirt of our lives. Sometimes we're on the journey of something that was started with God, but along the way we just can't see God in it anymore. And so we think that either God has left the building or God has changed his mind or that we've let him down because we didn't um, hold up our end of the bargain and because of our failings and he's no longer with us. 
But the promise from heaven is that if it starts with God, it's going to end up good. Because God uses all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. God can create something out of nothing. And if he created mankind from the dirt, then that situation in your life that feels like dirt, God can breathe the breath of life into it. And, any, and things that seem dead in your life can come to life. Because he is good. It doesn't matter about the situation being good. It's about our God who is good. I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of the start to life that Jesus experienced. He was born in a manger. He was born in a barn. Possibly even based on what it was like back in those days, it was possibly even just a cave or, or a rock overhang. Not a very great start to life for baby Jesus. The Bible says that his dad, Joseph, couldn't even arrange to find a room in a house or an inn anywhere. Best Western, the Mercure, Ibis Budget even, they were all full. He couldn't get a room anywhere. But I can guarantee that every single one of us here today has had a better start to life than what Jesus encountered. My two boys were born in Calvary Hospital and Canberra Hospital. And while they weren't flash, they were a million times better than a barn. Because I don't remember seeing a donkey or a cow in the delivery suite. That, that wasn't a case for us. But Jesus experienced this kind of start to life. And maybe God was trying to show us something that where you start is not a reflection of where you're going to finish. That it may look like dirt now, but when God gets involved, things can change around miraculously because of who God is. Or maybe you've had people question and doubt your hopes and your dreams because of the dirt in your background. And Jesus experienced this same thing too. In the book of John, we see a man named Nathaniel who tells a guy called Philip about Jesus being the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for for so long. But Nathaniel questions Philip about the validity of his statement simply because of the background of Jesus, simply because of where Jesus came from. It says in John 1, 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel asked. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Armadale? Can anything good come from that family or that background? Can anything good come from that situation? Can anything good come from that event that you went through? Nathaniel didn't believe that the Son of God could possibly come from a place like Nazareth. But where we start is not the determining fact about where we finish up. Nathaniel didn't understand that where Jesus had been couldn't stop him from where he was going to go because God is more powerful than our backgrounds. And can you see that where you have been does not have to be the determining factor as to where God wants to take you? Don't disqualify yourself because of the, uh, of the promises of God has for you because of your background and your past experiences. He is more powerful. Where you are doesn't have to be where you stay. The things that you have been doing, the struggles that you have had, the mindset that you've experienced doesn't have to be those things that you experience for the rest of your life. God can move you on from those things. <clears throat> Genesis 3, from the message in Arena 1 to 14, it says this. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman, Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you will die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, then you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, that she'd know everything. Ladies, just saying, you don't need to know everything. I'm in trouble. (laughs) She took and ate, let's focus people. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband. And he ate. Of course he ate. Immediately the two of them did see what was really going on. They saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together to make makeshift clothes for themselves. When they heard the sound of God strolling through the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden, hid from God. God called to man, where are you? Where are you? I want you to know that whenever you get caught in some dirt, whenever things have gone on in your life, God wants to know, where are you? And it wasn't that God didn't know geographically or physically where Adam was. I mean, we're talking about God. But it was his father's heart for mankind asking, where where are you at? What's going on? What I found out recently is that in America and in Canada, in supermarkets and shopping centers, but it originally started in Walmart. In these places, they have this, this policy called a code Adam. And what happens is, is if a child gets lost in the shops and it gets reported to the staff, then they call a code Adam. And every single staff member drops what they're doing to look for the child. And if that child isn't found within 10 minutes, they shut the store down, they call the police, and they do everything possible in order to find that child. When you get lost, when you get trapped in sin, when we find ourselves in dirt, God calls a code Adam for you because God is concerned about all of his children. He's concerned when we get lost. He is the one who leaves the 99 sheep that are safe in order to find the one who is lost. He cares about you. He cares where you're at. So when he asked, where are you? It wasn't a a condemnatory or, or criticizing them. He was asking because he cares deeply about us. Even when you're waist deep in dirt, he still cares for you. It carries on. It says, Adam said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? The man said, the woman that you gave me as a companion, she gave me the fruit from the tree. And yes, I ate it. Then God said to the woman, what what is it that you've done? The serpent seduced me, she said, and I ate. See, ultimately, men and women are the same. We both play the blame game. Only difference is women generally blame the right person. We're not very good. Stop blaming myself. It was the serpent. No. Adam and Eve messed up. They messed up. They got caught up in some serious dirt. This is an act of sin that affects the whole of eternity for mankind. This has got to be up there with the worst day in human history. This is worse than the day that somebody put beetroot on a hamburger. This is a bad day for humanity. (laughs) Focus, people. Come on. 
gosh. <laughs> no, no. But look at the first thing that God does. He discovers what they've done. He, he confronts them about it. He says, what, what have you done, guys? But the first thing that God does is it says this. God told the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed. Cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals. Cursed to slink on your belly and to eat dirt all your life. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your, he'll wound your head. You'll wound his heel. The first thing that God does isn't lay into Adam and Eve for the, the mess that they've made. Although they made a mistake and there, were, there are consequences for them. And there are consequences to our mistakes too. Let's, let's make sure there's no mistake about that. But God turns to the enemy and says that you're cursed to be in the dirt. See, God doesn't intend for you to grovel in the dirt. That's the enemy's punishment. But the enemy wants to convince you that his dirt is your dirt. That those thoughts that you have are, are, are your thoughts. That the way of doing things is your way of doing things. That because of what you've done, you deserve to be stuck in the dirt. No, that's his dirt. That's his punishment. We've got to stop accepting the dirt of the enemy and, take on, uh, and taking it on as our own. God doesn't put you in the dirt. God is the one who lifts us out of the dirt. It says in Psalm 113, He raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap. The enemy wants us to think that God's got us trapped in the dirt. That there's no way of us moving on from the mistakes that we've made. But that scripture tells us clearly that God is the one who lifts us out of the dirt. As we close this morning, musicians, please come. I want to have a look at one final story in the Bible. It's found in John 8 from 1 to 11. We'll start at verse 2, sorry. At dawn, talking about Jesus, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older one first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I want to tell you something this morning, that when you find yourself trapped in some dirt, the thing that Jesus does when we find ourselves in that place, 
he gets down in the dirt with us. That's what the story of the cross is all about. It's God from heaven, almighty God coming down into the dirt, into the muck, into the reality of what humanity is all about. It's God taking on flesh, becoming one of us. Scholars try and guess what Jesus wrote in the dirt that day. What words was he writing? What, what, what picture was he drawing? Was there maybe a phrase that he wrote in the sand that as they read it, they, 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 it convicted them of something? But the, the truth is we don't know. We'd love to know, but we don't know. What we do know, though, is that as he wrote and as his accusers all stood there watching, something happened in that moment which caused everyone to leave, starting with the oldest and the wise, wisest. Until all that was left was Jesus and this woman. And whatever the message or picture or words that he wrote in the dirt was, it caused the woman with the dirt to stay and have her life transformed and those who thought they had no dirt in their lives to turn and walk away. I can tell you right now that God has a message even in your dirt. Yes, God can and God wants to lift you out of the dirt that you're in. That He loves you enough to meet you in the place where you're at, to come to the place where you're in the dirt, but He loves you too much to leave you there. He wants to lead you out of it. But while in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus gets down into the mess that you're in with you. And God has a message in your dirt for you. It's a message of hope. It's a message of grace. It's a message that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a message that he's right there with you, that he's going to see you through. It's a message that, that no matter how dirty you feel, how deep in the muck you find yourself, that he is there, that he loves you, and that he cares for you. He has a message for you even in the dirt. unexpected ingredients that lead to God's goodness. We all want the roses, but what about the unexpected ingredients that God uses for good in our lives? Is it possible to look at the dirt in our lives in a different way? That God uses all things for the good of those who are called according to His purposes.